and the final week. We've seen Jesus' pattern of movement as he comes into Jerusalem. He came into Jerusalem for a reason. He had those major feasts that he, must, that he wanted to participate in, he had to participate in. But he also took that opportunity to teach. He took that opportunity to proclaim his identity. And he did this by miracles. He did this by pronouncements of his deity. Then, after a period of time, because things got a little heated there, he retreated to safety back to the northern region. Uh, Uh, And the reason he did this was not a fear. It wasn't his time, and he said that on more than one occasion. It is not yet time for me to be arrested, not time for me to suffer and down the cross. It is not time for me to be resurrected. So today, we will look at the events that took place as Jesus was passing through the northern region for one last time. One last time before entering into Jerusalem, so he will, or he would, suffer. He would be arrested, I should say. He would suffer. He would die on the cross, and of course, he would be resurrected. So previously, as we remember from last week, the Jewish leadership, and we use that clock analogy, the Jewish leadership had officially sanctioned his death. And the leader on this right here at this particular time who had stepped into the fold was Caiaphas, who was the high priest, and he was leading the charge. So, of course, as we said last week, Jesus returned to the northern region for one last tour of ministry with his apostles. So would you join me in prayer, please? Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you, Father, and we thank you. We thank you for the teaching of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus as he went about doing the business of our proclaiming who he was. And Father, not only that, Father, he didn't shy away from what was before him. Each and every time he knew the possibilities, but also he knew that nothing would take place until this appointed time. And Father, let us be mindful of that. Let us be mindful that there's a place for us in in, in the kingdom, Father, through Christ Jesus. So let us live our lives, Father. Let us take the opportunity, knowing that God comes to us according to our needs, not according to our merit. Father, we love you and thank you for this opportunity. These things we pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen. So we turn our attention then. To event 107. Uh, here we talk, we would be talking about 10 lepers that Christ Jesus healed. Now, leprosy as we know it, uh, we, know, we think of things falling off and things like that, but really, leprosy any, any, can be any type of a skin disease that we come, like psoriasis, for instance. But Luke specifies that Jesus was on the frontier of Samaria and on his way to Jerusalem when 10 lepers cried out to him for mercy. They did not come near him because they shouldn't because of the disease that they had. But Jesus tells them to show themselves to the high priest. And there's a reason for this. Once he, they were healed of leprosy, they had to go to the high priest, and the priest will examine them and make a determination whether or not they have been healed so that they can again resume activities in normal society. So they all believe him. They all believe him, and they turn and they ran toward the officials to receive the confirmation of their healing. All but one. All but one, and that was a Samaritan. He turned and came to Jesus to give thanks for his healing. 
And as a result, he receives an extra and more important blessing. He received forgiveness of his sins. It's fair to say that the other nine were like those that Christ Jesus had fed with bread and a few fish. You remember that miracle. Their bodies were nourished, yes, but their souls were untouched. The lepers, the leper rather, who returned to give thanks and pay homage to the Lord showed that healing produced faith in him and that faith saved his soul. Event 108. So the Pharisees believed that the coming of the kingdom of God would be a good thing for them. And there was a reason they were thinking like this. They thought that the kingdom would usher in a golden era of Jewish supremacy. And guess who would be in charge? We, the religious leaders. With this in mind, they asked Christ Jesus about the coming of the kingdom. And Jesus answers. He answers them using a language that was hard for them to, con- to discern. You, it can be referred to as uh, apocalyptic. He gave them a message that they were not prepared to hear. In this message, in this message, Christ Jesus said, the kingdom was already here among them. But not only that, because they had missed it, they're going to suffer crises. They're going to have to deal with the judgment of the Son of Man. He told them that the crisis would come upon them suddenly and without warning. He told them the crisis, that the crisis would bring devastation. And what he's referring to is the fact that he is ushering in the kingdom of God. He's trying to help them understand that he embodies the kingdom of God that they refuse to accept through him. And the result of their refusal to acknowledge him is that they will be judged. They will be judged for this when he brings judgment upon them. His warning is that they will be destroyed suddenly and only a few will escape. And this prophecy is in reference to 70 AD when the Roman army will come into Jerusalem and destroy mostly everyone there save for a few Christians who managed to escape. Now in event 109, Christ Jesus brings two parables. He brings one about perseverance, which is a lesson for us as well. And he brings one about pride, which is a lesson for us as well. So in this last ministry tour, Jesus teaches on these two things. He's teaching about our personal relationship with God. He's teaching about there as well as our personal relationship with God. So in the first parable, it was the parable of the widow who, as we remember reading about the text here, She pesters this city official to give her justice until finally the guy throws up his hand and say, fine, you got it. And this shows that perseverance is a powerful tool. It's a powerful tool in the hands of the weak. Now, he taught this for a reason. He taught this not just to encourage them, but to encourage us as well, to encourage all people to persevere 
in prayer to the almighty God. Because you see the difference between an almighty God and that official is just right here. That, that uncaring official gives in just because. But God comes to us because he is interested and is concerned about what we need. He is interested and concerned about our well-being. So we turn our attention next to the parable of the, the Pharisees and the publican. This shows two men. They're praying. The Pharisee who is judging himself in comparison to the publican, and in judging himself, he finds out something about himself in his head. He finds that he is righteous. But by contrast, the publican, in judging himself against God's law, he finds himself guilty. He finds himself unworthy. So Jesus here shows that God's mercy is on those who humbly acknowledge their sins and his judgment is on those who try to justify or excuse themselves or excuse their sins so when we look at these two parables what we can look at it this way is this is a a thinly veiled rebuke of the official ruling class of religious leaders there in Jerusalem who had failed in exercising judgment, they had failed in exercising mercy toward others, and who had been too proud to ask for mercy from God for themselves. Event 110. The Pharisees question Christ Jesus on divorce. Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10. So what we have is Jesus leaves the far northern region of the country. He's around Galilee at this time. And he heads south. And as he is headed south, there come the Pharisees again. And they, they, they confront him in the region of Perea. And what they're trying to do is trap him on the issue of divorce. So in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, we'll be reading it in a moment. So at that time, there were two main schools of, of thought on the teaching of the law concerning divorce. And we see it again in Deuteronomy chapter 24, actually verses 1 through 4. But let's read verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, the Bible reads, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Hold on to that word indecency. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. So we said there were two schools of thought here, two different rabbis in their way when they look at that word indecency. The rabbi Shammai said that indecency was, was some kind of shameful sexual behavior, whereas the rabbi Halil said that indecency was any behavior that the husband didn't like. Hmm. So the Pharisees asked Jesus, again, pay attention to a word, can. Can a man divorce for any reason? And the, pro- the reason for asking him this is what they were trying to do is provoke him to choose one side or the other. Now, something else we have to remember about that time as well was that uh, only men were permitted, and they put this in place, man did, only men were permitted to initiate divorce. 
So the, the thought is behind this when you're trying to trap somebody is this. And, and really, this kind of happens today, too, the way people are approached. So if he agreed with Shammai, they would accuse him of being a hypocrite. Why? Because he associates with sinners. And remember the lady who was caught in the very act of adultery? He let her off the hook. But remember, they also didn't bring the man either. If he agreed with Halil, then he w- they would accuse him of being soft on the voice. They would accuse him of being a liberal rather than a conservative. And if he rejected both, ha-ha, they would accuse him of violating the law since the law permitted divorce. So Jesus responds by teaching them several basic lessons about marriage that they had either misunderstood or they had overlooked altogether. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, what we find is this right here and what Christ Jesus was helping them understand. Marriage is a creation of God, not man. It was instituted in Genesis in beginning, and the rules that govern it are still these. What are the rules that govern marriage? What are the rules that govern marriage? Okay. Let's do foundational simple. Yes. Put by God first. All right. I like that. Put thy God first. And that's very good. Thank you. And that going along with the Bates foundation of this. One man, one woman for life. One man, one woman for life. But Jesus wasn't done. Jesus wasn't done. The instructions in the law permitting divorce did not change the original design of marriage. One man, one woman for life. They were put there because of the arrival of sin. And because of the arrival of sin, there needed to be direction on what to do when sin destroyed a marriage. What was considered legal? What, what is to, to happen to the original wife? Protection of the children, and the list goes on and on. But in their hard-heartedness, in their hard-heartedness, men were putting away their wives without any legal standing for the woman. Why? Because of, why? Why is this? You see, because of this, she couldn't remarry, which was her only option to support herself. You know, we have to look at the times back then. I put you away, and how are you supposed to live? How are you supposed to keep clothes on your back, food in your stomach? What if the children got thrown out with you because the man wanted to start afresh? How are you supposed to support those children and yourself? Unfortunately, to support themselves, many women turn to prostitution. Unfortunately, to support themselves, many women turn to cohabitation outside of marriage just in order to survive. And both of these situations, both of these situations were shameful in that society.
In a moment, we'll be uh, reading again Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 and 2. So by requiring a bill of divorce, the woman was legally free to remarry and have proper status. Deuteronomy 24, 1 and 2. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. What breaks the bond of marriage is a violation against the very thing that sustains the very bond of marriage. What is the very thing that sustains the very bond of marriage? Sex. Sex. When there's fornication, when there's fornication, Sex sin that includes adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, and any other type of sexual impurity. A marriage bond is broken. Legal divorce is permissible in these cases without bringing guilt upon the innocent partner. So Jesus didn't say you couldn't break the marriage bond. He said you shouldn't break the marriage bond. Now, it's very important that we understand those couldn't and shouldn't. Christ Jesus never said we couldn't sin. He said we shouldn't sin. God never said we couldn't disobey him. He said we shouldn't disobey him. God never said we couldn't lie. He said we shouldn't lie. Not that we couldn't kill. It's that we shouldn't kill. The one who divorced their partners for reasons other than sexual sin were guilty of several sins themselves in those days. First of all, they unlawfully divorced. In other words, they did what God said they should not do. They committed adultery by breaking their marriage vows themselves. The word adultery doesn't only, keep this in mind, it doesn't only refer to a sexual sin. It also means the breaking of a vow or the practice of idolatry, as we see in uh, Jeremiah 3 at verse 9, Ezekiel 23 at verse 37, Matthew 19 at verse 9, and James 4 at verse 4. Note that Jesus doesn't say, except for fornication and marriage and marries another commits fornication, which specifically refers to sexual sin. What he says is commits adultery, commits adultery. So they cause their innocent partners to be stigmatized as adulterous in the eyes of society. Why? Because all others who were not there would assume that this was the true reason that they were put away. He put her away because she was doing these things. Not that I was doing them, but that she was doing them. I even caused them to sexual sin themselves, to commit sexual sin themselves, to go into prostitution. 
they caused even future mates to be stigmatized as adulterers by society for the same reason. She was put away. She must have been an adulteress. He's married to her, so therefore he is an adulterer. The Pharisees, man's laws, the Pharisees were notorious for their many divorces. And Jesus doesn't permit them to justify themselves by claiming that they had legal divorces. He shows them that the law that governs marriage is in Genesis. And he demonstrates the extent of the damage they did when they divorced. Now, there is further teaching on marriage and divorce in 1 Corinthians, which we are not going to cover in this lesson, but there's a whole other series of lessons on that that uh, in the future we will bring. So it is after this confrontation that, that Jesus stops to bless little children brought to him. And he also does something else. He warns the apostles and everyone else not to hinder the children from coming to him for blessings. Think about children for a moment. Think about their innocence. Think about their trust and faith. Innocence and trust and faith was and is important to succeed in marriage, but it also was and is important and will be important to succeed in entering the kingdom of God. Event 111. The rich ruler represents the best, if you will, about the Jewish nation. He was young. He was wealthy. He was knowledgeable of the law. He was pious in that he tried to carefully obey all of the law. The result of this, however, simply brought him to the point where he realized that something was missing. He wanted eternal life. And he confessed that with all of his trying, he had not yet grasped it. Jesus tells him, Jesus tells him, to get eternal life, he must leave his temporal life. When we leave our temporal life, what does that involve? When we leave our temporal life, when we leave our worldly life, what does that involve? How about this? It involves money and position and following Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to back up a moment to last week because Brother Bob brought something to my attention. We were talking about the obstacles that prevent us or separate us from God. And I said they can be, they can be spouse, they can be children, they can be parents, they can be down the list. And Bob brought to my attention, what are we are supposed to do, throw them out? <laughs> no, that's not what we're saying. Remember what Christ Jesus said? You to hate mother, father, sister, brother. He wasn't saying hate as we do it in, in human thoughts. He was saying love less. So if you got a great job, you got millions in the bank, God bless you. But don't love that and those things more than you love God. Don't love husband, wife, children, parents, friends more than we love God. And that's what he's talking about here. So at this meeting with the Lord, 
the young man found out that his great love of wealth was standing in the way of his eternal life. So Jesus takes the opportunity here to warn about the dangers of wealth and how its pursuit can blind and block a person's ability to see or enter into the spiritual kingdom. I love Peter. Peter speaks up a drop of a hat. <laughs> I love this dude. So Peter at this point complains that the apostles have already given up their wealth to follow Jesus, and they had. And the Lord reassures them that their reward will far outweigh what it is they've given up. He reminds them that the kingdom, that in the kingdom, the first, that is the rich and powerful, are last, and the last, that is the humble and weak, are first. And you think about that for a moment. When we look at those individuals that was coming to Christ Jesus back in those days, and even today, really, those who are humble and weak are the ones that's coming. Those who are rich and powerful, who people look at as being first and foremost, they come later, like Nicodemus, for instance. And this is a great lead into event 112 that took place, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. So in line with this warning about riches and services, Jesus also teaches about attitude. He teaches about attitude by telling the parable, again, of the workers hired at different times of the day for the same pay. And, you know, every time someone is baptized here, we remind them that you've come now. There were many who came before you. But on the day of judgment, if you continue living this lifestyle in obedience to God, in fear of God, in reverence to God, you get the same reward as the person who was baptized back in the first century. No more, no less. He's reminding them of that. So in this parable, he shows that whatever we receive from God, whatever we receive from God, it's always fair. It's always generous. And it is not based on our deserving work. No, not at all. It's based on the kindness of God. This is one of the three occasions where Jesus uses the saying, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Other passages, we find him saying, doing the same thing in response to Peter and the apostles about their reward for following him, as we see in Matthew chapter 19 at verse 30, and another time when he was responding to the question regarding uh, who would be saved at Luke 13 at verse 30. So at event 113, what we have is the third time that Christ Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. So it's fair to say Jesus, once again, predicts these things will happen. But this time he gives more detail in the manner of his suffering, in the manner of his death. As well as, well as a clear indication that in three days he will be resurrected. 
Luke says that even at this late date, now, these individuals have been with Christ Jesus for three years now, for the better part of three years. They've been with him for the better part of three years, and they, some of them, the apostles, still did not understand what he was talking about. Three days, this temple will be raised. So that brings us to event 114. James and John. They have a, a request that on the surface looks good, but really is not. So James and John, sensing that the time of an important event was at hand or is near, that is the coming of this earthly kingdom and they, the apostles, are the head, James and John makes, makes this request. They make a bid. They want this choice position when it comes to the throne of God. One of them want to be on the left. The other one want to be on the right. And what we find is that the other apostles who's listening to this, they're starting to resent these guys like you guys are jockeying for a position. But Jesus answers that they have not and they will not suffer in a way to deserve this to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But he will. He does tell them that they will, however, suffer because of the kingdom. But not only that, they will gain their requests. But this is how it's going to work. They will be seated with the church at the right hand of God because they are in Christ Jesus. This goes back to what we said earlier. The first will be last and the last will be first. We who are here, who are children of God by virtue of the fact that we, 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 we've heard the word of God, we have our faith, we believe, we, we repented of our sins, we confess Christ Jesus the Lord and Savior, we've been united with him in the waters of baptism. We have lived, uh, we will live out obedient lives, faithful and obedient lives. In Christ Jesus, we as the church will be seated at the right hand of the throne of God because that's where Christ Jesus will be. He also reminds them of this. The high position they, they seek is attainable. It's attainable through service. It is attainable through, hum- through humility in the kingdom. It is not attainable by jockeying for power. We have needs of individuals to serve as elders here. We have needs of individuals to serve as deacons. But those positions are not something we jockey for. Those positions we are selected for and nominated for by other brethren because of the service that they see we humbly doing not because we are walking around saying you know how I make a great elder you should nominate me you know I make a great deacon because you should nominate me that's jockeying for power and really I don't see any power in being an elder I see a lot of responsibility and being held to a high degree of responsibility One fifteen, event one fifteen. Oops, turned my page too soon. So here Jesus heals two blind men. 
So in this account, we see that one of the two blind men was named Bartimaeus. He was the one who called out to Jesus, proclaiming him to be the son of David. Both were encouraged. I used the word encouraged. You might say a better word would be discouraged. Both were encouraged to not bother Jesus. But the Lord answered their call and healed their blindness. Now, the name of the one blind man, Bartimaeus, suggests, suggests that he became well known as a member of the church there in Jerusalem. Event 116, Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. So the miracle, the miracle of healing the blind men occurred as Jesus was entering Jericho. And Jericho is, is northeast of Jerusalem, okay? So after the miracle, the crowds followed him as they normally do as, as they went through the city. So one person, uh, a tax collector by the name of uh, Zacchaeus, he was a short man. He wanted to see Christ Jesus, so we're told that he climbed up a tree, and when Christ Jesus saw him, he called out to him, Zacchaeus, come down. And he said to him that he would eat with him. Zacchaeus was probably, he was probably the most despised man in the city. And here's Christ Jesus saying, <laughs> I'm going to eat with you. They will look at him and say, Christ Jesus, you're not, this man is not worthy to be at a table with you. But this is something for us to learn. When the opportunity came, when the opportunity came, Zacchaeus gladly received Jesus into his home. And while eating, Zacchaeus was so overwhelmed with gratitude that he publicly repents of his sins and commits himself to doing right. And what does Christ Jesus do? He blesses him then and there. He forgives him and blesses him then and there. Now, some would say, well, that shows you right there. Baptism isn't necessary. Context. Christ Jesus has not yet suffered and died on the cross for our sins. Christ Jesus had not yet been resurrected. Christ Jesus had not yet ascended into heaven. Event 117, the parable of the minas or the pounds. So during this same supper, <laughs> 